0: Welcome to SPAC Island with your hosts, Stan and Alex. We're two Silicon Valley tech product managers who love stock investing and have jumped on board the SPAC boat. Join us on our journey to find the diamonds in the rough. But please, always do your own research before trading. This is not financial advice.
1: So today we're going to be talking about uh, mining specs. so specifically MP Materials and the metal company. So two different specs uh, that are going public or have already gone public in this kind of less talked about area with, with uh, rare earth metals.
0: So MP Materials, uh, ticker MP, they are uh, a rare earth mining company. Um, so for some context, rare earths Make up are quite a, actually quite a bit of the earth's crust, um, so they're not actually that rare, but they belong into the part of the periodic table called rare earth elements. Uh, they're actually used to make really powerful magnets, they have these inherent magnetic abilities um, that are used inside th- things like electric motors or electric actuators. And so, you'll find them in you know, everything from headphones uh, to electric vehicles like Tesla. Um, all the way up to fighter jets and nuclear subs. And so you can imagine that headphones use uh, a relatively small amount of um, of rare earths. Uh, you commonly hear about them as neodymium magnets. They're kind of the uh, those little magnets that that drive the sound in the headphones. But then nuclear subs actually use uh, nearly five tons of rare earth. So as you can imagine, you know, within that wide range of products, all the all that demand can really adds up, and uh, so if we just look at EVs today, EVs currently consume five percent of today's global annual production of uh, of those neodymium uh, magnets. But by twenty thirty five, EVs alone could surpass one hundred percent of today's global annual production. So you can expect that you know everybody from the consumer market to the defense industry. Uh, creating so much demand is going to require more greenfield sources of of these materials. And on the flip side, um, now that we've talked a little bit about demand, um, supply as of today is pretty constrained. Uh, the market dynamics are not very varied. So Mountain Pass, our company, is actually the only supplier in the entire Western Hemisphere. And China is, on the other hand, the clear market leader globally. And they do both producing, supply, and magnet manufacturing. While MP, Mountain Pass, only is a supplier, um, China uh, dominates with both supply and manufacturing. That market concentration creates risks. um, And in today's political climate, it could uh, turn into a bit of a bargaining chip. Now that definitely has uh, speculation on my part. I'm not aware of any any of that going on right now. But um, as the U.S. you know tries to grow its supply, you know I think it'd be not difficult to see rare earth materials as a um, factored into national security, into on top of economic growth. But zooming out into the company itself. It was actually originally founded in 1952. Uh, it, had, it was discovered to have really high-quality ore, and by the 60s to 80s, it was actually um, the world's leading supplier of rare earths. After the 80s, uh, things kind of went downhill for that mine. Uh, China's uh, policy focused on market share dominance and made it really difficult for companies like MP to keep up. At one point, MP actually pivoted away from Rare earth mining into cerium, and so they did a lot of retrofitting to to convert their mine. Um, but ulti- and ultimately, they also spent a lot of money trying to make the mine as uh, environmentally as friendly as possible, because in the U.S., there's obviously a lot of uh, thought put into the environmental uh, negative externalities that go into mining. Yeah, kind of like into mining. organic farming. Yep, that's another one. And so that obviously requires a huge capex in order to get there. Um, so, for example, they did achieve what they set out to achieve. You know, they this mine actually uses only 5% of the fresh water needed uh, by comparable operations. But that business move was pretty costly. It resulted in them going bankrupt in 2015. The mine itself kind of sh- exchanged hands. You know, Chevron was one of the holders of a company that they bought which went bankrupt. But ultimately, the mine went idle. And uh, two years later, the current MP materials company that we're talking about today acquired the mine, diving more into MP. uh, The exec leadership, which bought the mine, is actually a banker-led company. So these are kind of these investment bankers who saw this opportunity, was able to use their expertise in kind of managing deal flow to secure the the mine itself uh, on the path to uh, reopening the mine I think this is one of those times where I make the exception of having non kind of uh, technical expertise driven teams kind of lead the company as a good thing there was I think the deck um, in the investor presentation for MP I think they said there was close to two billion dollars of capital invested on the ground at the time that they bought it so I'm sure there's quite a bit of, um, you know, financial modeling and forecasting and kind of complexity to getting the deal done that only somebody with kind of that type of expertise would be able to to execute. But the good thing is they also have a lot of operating experience. Um, so they have called out in their investor presentation four key people in their operational leadership. You know, each of them have had decades of experience. And actually, three of the four leaders uh, worked on the Mountain Pass mine uh, from the prior ownership. So you, so I'm expecting this team to be pretty familiar with the ins and outs of the facilities and kind of what it takes to, to run a tight ship in that mine. So they, this company has a really clear roadmap on what they want to accomplish. Part of it, some of it, are they already have. But their plan is broken up into three stages. Stage one is... Just getting the operation back into shape, ta- you know, digging up uh, the earth and refining it into what's called a rare earth concentrate. I think this is kind of a concentrate that has a mix of all the different rare earths that can be ultimately extracted. Um, so it's not really close to becoming a magnet, but you're at least have something that has been dug out of the ground uh, to be able to sell to somebody. And to their credit, they have this concentrate. And what they're doing is they're mining it at a cost of uh, $0.92. And they're actually selling it for $1.33. So uh, if you do the math, that nets them uh, $0.41 per kilogram. Now, currently, they're selling that all to China. So they're not really shaking up the market since they're only selling to China. But the future stages will uh, allow them to open up their product line to uh to buyers across the world. At their current production level, you know, in Q1 2020 they were already ebitda profitable, which is pretty great, and they expect that to be stable going forward. Yep. And unique uh, so in the back world. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's not like uh, once in a blue moon, but like there's there's a few companies out there that are ebitda profitable. I think this one is maybe the most interesting one. I think it, I think it's a very positive note that you can kind of know that they're already doing something that that can be sold for, for more than it's worth. <laughs> In the next few years, they'll be completing stage two. They're already working on it. Um, and the idea is to retrofit their facilities to be able to turn the concentrate into an intermediary product that would actually get turned into a rare earth magnet. Earlier, I mentioned the... Uh, Previous owners of the mine converted part of their facility to uh, mine and process cerium because the rare earths industry had uh, become uh, financially infeasible due to the Chinese policy to dominate the rare earths market. So now that the company's current goal is to enter back into that supply chain, that rare earth supply chain, um, they're having to undo. A lot of that work. So that will come at uh, a bit of capex, but it is expected to be completed uh, next year in 2022. And that product that they're making, so from the concentrate to the more intermediary uh, product, that will open MP up to a global market. Now, based on their investor deck, that it's not a huge global market. Like, it's not like there's, you know, dozens and dozens of countries that they can sell this to. I think there's uh, one place in Europe. And some other places in Asia, like I think Japan has some um, facilities that could that would be on the market for buying what MP has to offer. But it's still it's still better. It's uh, it's more than just China. And if they do achieve this, they would be able to double their EBITDA in pretty much all their bear and bull case projections. So if they can accomplish this, it would be a a very good move for them, not only in their vision to enter the the supply chain fully, um, but also uh, financially speaking. The other cherry on top is that this effort is actually expected to be a pretty low risk one, because all they're doing is reactivating capabilities that they had for decades. And the operational team, like I mentioned before, has been working at the mine uh, during the prior ownership. So it's a lot of unwinding and and putting back pieces that uh, have been taken out of place in the mine's later years, so I think uh, I think this sounds like a relatively low risk stage of uh, of the company that they're at.
1: Yeah, I guess the main risk is like on the, on the future: I work and they sell this, and how can they convert to do that kind of more growth? Kind of, like I guess if, if they kept doing what they're doing, they're making some money. That's great, but um, but if they start actually refining and making and not having to ship their product overseas, that's when they really start making the money. That's kind of the growth narrative. Exactly.
0: Now, stage three of their vision is kind of their holy grail. They haven't really started developing this at all, uh, from my understanding. But it would allow them to actually build the magnets that China and some of these other places around the world are building. It would definitely be a departure from their existing core competencies of just doing the mining and processing. Because they're saying that, one, they wouldn't start till 2025. Two, they're kind of admitting that it would be a pretty big uh, investment, and they're saying that they would really just do it as you know, they would buy a company or build or join venture uh, with somebody else with that expertise. So I think this is kind of going back to Spac's and how they kind of uh, pitch grand visions. I think this is this is like the grand vision that they're pitching. You know, they don't really know how they're going to do it, but eventually, this is like. What would propel them into their final evolution? I think it's a really admirable goal. I think that it would be really cool to um, just have like a very domestically owned supply chain of making these magnets end to end.
1: It's kind of their, their like a cherry on top is here's how we can make a ton of money and make you a, a huge return. But even if they don't do that, yeah. they still have a pretty solid business uh, just doing what they're doing today.
0: Yeah. Now, the, the one risk I really just see like the only existential risk. I see is uh, I know that given the supply constraint and the growing demand, uh, I know Toyota has been doing research into making these EV motors that require less rare earths. I haven't seen any numbers on any performance hits or like what would be an acceptable less amount to use, but I could foresee potentially a change such that because of all this uh, imbalance in supply and demand that Companies just make some breakthrough, and they're like, "Oh, we don't actually need so many of these rare earth metals." And then MP is uh, caught in that crossfire, and uh, they start they have all this capex invested in something that the world doesn't need as much of anymore.
1: I think any breakthrough would take a long time to p- to kind of percolate through the system. So at least in the short term, it kind of feels like it's more insulated, barring any massive yeah. breakthroughs that somehow <laughs> take o- take over the entire market in like five years. But I think it, any kind of shift would be, would take a long time.
0: Now I am invested in this company. Um, Alex, are you, I forget.
1: Nope. So this doesn't really meet my risk profile. It's uh very safe, <laughs> which I tend to <coughs> tend to be a bit bit more on the uh, pie in the sky moonshot territory where if, if there's a chance to mm. make a hundred X, then but it's like 90% chance of failure. I'm, I'm more, I'm more willing to to put my money there. Uh, but it also depends. It's also kind of how our portfolios are structured. So I'm not really mm-hmm. playing around with my main portfolio. I'm playing around with a small portion of it and uh, putting that into what I think are high growth companies and uh, empty materials is is kind of what I think is the, would be like the blue chip kind of mining, very stable. Maybe there's some kind of pie in the sky thing to to incentivize you some carrot ahead. But I think for the most part, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on that. And to me, it feels like uh they're just going to make maybe 10%, 12% a year. And that's fine. That's good.
0: I think the one way it might turn into a rocket ship is if the price of the commodity skyrockets due to demand. But I think, I don't know anything about commodity, but I, I imagine they have a way of kind of working themselves out. Kind of like with the Toyota thing of like, oh, I guess we'll just use less rare earths or, you know, the market kind of just compensates for stuff like that.
1: Yeah, it's like But oil. if,
0: right. You th- you? I mean, I think I guess everybody thought oil would be like an expensive thing or like it would always be needed. But then during the COVID crisis, you know, you had to pay people to hold on to your oil. So, um,
1: I also mean in the sense that uh, at like a hundred dollars a barrel plus, new technologies make are like cost effective. So it could be the same in <clears throat> the rare earth space. There's some things that just cost too much, but at a certain price, it's worth using these additional mining techniques to then bring in more supply into the market.
0: Yeah, I will say, I think my investment thesis is turning more into a kind of like what will drive the US economy going forward. So I think I, while I normally think of myself as trying to invest in things that will like 10 or like whatever, like go up exponentially, I think I actually am comfortable investing in a company that will grow a little bit slower if I think it is pretty key to just driving all the other Components of the economy. And I kind of see rare earth metals as part of that.
1: I think uh, there's an additional value there, the broader world, especially unlocking, uh, like later on, re- unlocking refining in the, in the US versus having to kind of outsource that to China, which is really what the entire mm-hmm. market is doing today. So I guess while Mountain Pass Materials is a bit of a safer kind of play where they already have a mine, they're already just kind of putting money where money's already being made and they are profitable. The other side is the metal company, which is not profitable. (laughs) So the metal company Mm. is, uh, they're taking a different approach to mining. So while the mountain pass is essentially doing kind of your traditional mining, going to the earth, uh, getting a ton of dirt and then sifting through the dirt and to extract the different materials, the metal company is uh, essentially looking at the ocean instead. So there's like these, essentially rocks, on the bottom of the ocean, particularly between Hawaii and Central America, where there's these rocks on the ground and these rocks have a lot of rare earth materials in them. They're just sitting there on the surface of the seafloor that you can just kind of pick them up. And then you already have the rocks that you would otherwise extract from the, from the ground. So while you have like all this machinery and you have to move so much dirt to get to these rocks on, uh, on land on the seafloor, they're just floating. They're just kind of not floating there, but they're sitting there maybe a few thousand feet, uh, below the ocean, below the water. So if you can get them, you can literally just pick them up and then you can start refining them and there's a few benefits to these. So number one, they're right there. You can kind of just have a trawler to pick them up. And then the other thing is that they have copper, nickel, cobalt, a lot of these different materials already inside of them, and they have a large percentage. In addition to that, they're pretty porous. So porous means that the the heat can go through it more easily, which means it's easier to extract the different materials. So, like, typically, if you have like a solid rock that doesn't have any rock, that many holes, you're gonna to have to put a lot more heat to try to heat up the core. But if it's porous, then there's there's pathways for that uh, heat to get through and to heat up the entire rock more easily. So it me- means that smelting is cheaper. It means that it's a little bit more feasible to, or a little cheaper to to extract all the materials. Uh, so super kind of interesting idea. Again, kind of a kind of a moonshot, which also kind of aligns with my my thesis, where. There's this idea that you can go out to the seafloor, you can get some boat, you sc- scoop some uh, rocks from the seafloor, and then you uh, extract the materials from them. So it's not something that we really do today. Maybe the oil industry has some type of analog where they go out to the, to the ocean to then drill into the seabed. But otherwise, we don't really do too much, at least in the mining space, besides oil, uh, especially just kind of trawling and getting rocks from the seafloor. Uh, which is kind of an interesting idea and also relatively hasn't really been used on a commercial scale before. So th- this company is essentially trying to get it ready for the commercial uh, for commercial use to actually pick up these rocks that are just lying around. So there's a ton of, they've already done a lot of analysis. Most of what they've been doing so far is just a lot of research and it's been privately funded. The SPAC is essentially to take it from being privately held to a retail investor and uh, your traditional investors uh, being able to invest in this idea in the public markets. Still, kind of a moonshot. They're not really planning to make any money uh, anytime soon. I think their current goal is to start production till around 2024. Uh, But they're saying another three years to get to a more kind of stable production level. So, still like pretty far out there. But again, it's kind of a moonshot idea. It's relatively cheap to extract. So, it's around $503 uh, per ton of material, which is far, far cheaper than than your traditional mining. Uh, you can already see that these guys, the mountain pass materials company is investing billions of dollars into a mine and they're getting tons out, but uh, $503 per ton is um, is a lot cheaper. I know, Stanley, if you know off the top of your head, how much cheaper that is, but it feels to me like a significantly cheaper than trying to go drill into a mountain and extract rocks that way.
0: Well, I feel like mountain pass is a little bit different in that they're mining for rare earths and the metal company is mining for just a different class of, of metal. Like they're doing, like you said, copper, nickel, cobalt, manganese, which I think are just a little bit different. But re- even if it were the same kind of dollars per dry ton, I think that the fact that one, I don't know, I guess dry ton of these rocks have four different metals. So it's like, uh, I think for context, my understanding is normally if you start up a mine, it just so happens that when you start up a mine, it's predominantly one metal that you're mining for. So if you're in, I think, the Congo and you're digging for cobalt, you really are only expecting to get cobalt out of this cobalt mine. But by scooping up these nodules from the bottom of the seafloor, just because of the way these metals are kind of extruded or kind of just kind of seeping out from the earth's crust and ending up on the the bottom of the seafloor, like there's no specific metal that is being pushed out. It's just kind of this blend, and so you're kind of getting a four for one deal. So I think no matter how you cut it, it seems like the these nodules are like a really financially great way of of uh, positioning your the company.
1: And it could be a kind of a future of of at least extracting some of these these types of metals, uh, which is kind of what I like. I like uh, things with high growth potential, but also higher risk.
0: Yeah, I will say my one kind of concern is it seems like they're doing a lot of partnerships in order to get these box samples. And it doesn't seem like they have any plans to really take the technology in-house or kind of own end-to-end the process for getting these mines. And so, you know, my concern is, one, the margins. So you So we can kind of, we established earlier that, you know, each dry ton of nodule is cheap and... It will yield kind of many different metals, whereas normally you only get one. But then, if you work with all these different partners, like the you contract with the company that will you'll have the vessel to take you out to the ocean, and then maybe you have somebody else that designed or uh, rents you the trawler, and then you know you have somebody else that sifts through it, blah blah blah. So there's all these different steps in the value chain, right? So like, if you have to work with each of these partners, everyone's going to take a cut what you're digging up. And that actually will make it more expensive. So like the amount that you're getting instead of the uh, $503 per ton, you know, maybe what you're getting is only a fraction of that.
1: I think the nice thing about these guys is they have the right to extract the materials here. So they, they don't even have to necessarily yeah, extract you. it themselves. I mean, they get more value out of that. But if they just um, like license out that, those rights so that other people can, can mine. And they just have to pay them to do it. Uh, so I think there's other ways that they could make money without spending so much on their own. So the partnerships is that is one way to kind of get other people interested as well if they want that route.
0: I also think that uh, this the leadership is actually kind of interesting. So it seems like the CEO isn't really um like a doesn't have a mining background or or anything like that. I almost think he's kind of like a virgin. He sounds like a uh Richard Branson type character where he's a serial entrepreneur and he just like really likes this idea of deep sea mining of metals and so he's just like building a team to accomplish that. So I think that's that's still rather unique for a pie in the sky ideas.
1: Yeah. I mean I think uh who's it uh James Cameron is like the the Hollywood director who's also super into uh deep sea exploration. So I could kind of see that there's lots of people who are interested in this, and maybe he he's done this in the past and mm-hmm. saw an opportunity here.
0: Oh, you know that would have been a great spec promoter to have James Cameron.
1: <laughs> have him be like, man, I saw all these rocks on the on the ocean floor. I just never thought about picking them up and bringing them somewhere else. Although it could potentially be <laughs> against him if he's into conservation, which I'm pretty sure he is, and I'm sure that taking I- up these rocks is probably ruining someone's environment.
0: I was actually watching a video. Of how they were dealing with that problem because part of the pitch is that you're disrupting far less of the earth in order to get these nodules so um, there's actually these two types of environments where these nodules exist one is uh, the metal company's going for which is these it's almost like a plane like these uh the prairie plains where like there's not really much around but the equivalent in the seafloor so where there's far less biodiversity and then there's this other place where they're not going, which is if you think about like uh, stalagmites that kind of come up from the ground, you have those in the seafloor. And then those have a lot of biodiversity because they kind of build up into these towers of vents coming from below the earth's crust. And that has a lot of wildlife. And like, if you've ever seen photos of like subs that go deep underwater, and there's like all these crazy animals Like weird shrimp looking things and jellyfish looking things. They're specifically avoiding that area, is my understanding. Because that takes a really long time to build.
1: So that's kind of why it's a more spotted kind of map Mm -hmm. for all the rights that they have. Might be uh, avoiding Mm -hmm. those those kind of hot spots.
0: And that actually brings up an interesting topic, which is over the last few years, you know, it's not just this company just like arbitrarily deciding to uh, root around in the seafloor. So it's uh, unlike the Elon Musk approach of like, oh, let's just start a boring company and just like uh, just like start digging underground with minimal municipal supervision uh, these guys actually uh, work with the um the people that live in those areas so they 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 talk to they have like a specific like Peter Jacob is this guy and he is the Nauru country manager um and so I guess there's a country called Nauru, and um they kind of work together to make sure that. You know, it's not going to completely mess up all of the wildlife for them to presumably do their their fishing and, you know, live their lives. I know these guys uh, secured, you know, specific areas over the years, like in 2011, they secured the Nori area in 2012, they secured the uh, Tamil area in 2015, they secured the Marwa area. So they're getting legitimate contracts, it seems, to, to do the mining as opposed to just, you know, just barging in and taking minerals that... Uh, may not be rightfully theirs.
1: I think also like there's a, there's an app with all the different areas that they've gotten the rights to exactly from all these islands. And then they also like, the islands also have like their protected areas, like you're saying, like we're not to, to kind of deploy these trawlers. But I think it kind of goes back to the rights thing. Like these guys have the rights, which I don't think anyone else does. I, I mean, it doesn't say exclusive anywhere as far as I could tell, but um, mm-hmm. just having the rights gives you a lot more kind of flexibility uh, to work with these partners and to not even have to Touch this operational side. You can just license, like, grant uh, access to mine in these areas, and then you just get uh, a cut, like ten uh, percent or twenty percent or however much you you can negotiate. Which is also really nice because um, if this ever does get off the ground, then there's like a no matter what, there's a path to revenue, provided that somebody mm-hmm. is mining in this area, whether these guys can figure yeah. it out on their own or whether they can get a um an oil company or someone else who has more deep sea experience to, to do this. So yeah, good. Right. So I, I kind of, I mean, this is more kind of in my territory of like the kind of investments I like where it is, it's like building a new technology. There's lots, I'm sure there's lots of technology challenges here. It's not just going out and scraping a bunch of rocks off the ocean. It's also figuring out where the rocks are optimal, um, kind of content. And then also you're in the middle of the Pacific. And then moving all those rocks uh, especially because i think rocks the value per ton is relatively low so mm. the amount of fuel that you need to use to to mine this and then to like bring it to a port to dump it uh has to be cost effective so i think there's a lot of interesting technological challenges they're gonna have to overcome to make this economically viable but uh i think it's i think it's a really interesting kind of uh take on mining especially because mining is so envir- it has such a massive environmental impact no matter how you slice it, mm. whether you're using a lot of water or not, doing it on land is just incredibly disruptive, so doing it on the ocean mm-hmm. well, arguably pretty <laughs> disruptive as well Well
0: yeah, it's more like you don't see the disruption <laughs> out of sight out of mind
1: yeah, and depending on how deep it is um, uh, you might not even it might not actually be total like conjecture here, but it might not it might not actually be like it might not be impacting the major environmental areas, assuming that these countries are giving you. <laughs> places that uh, are relatively devoid of of, uh, life or so deep Mm. that uh, there's not much life that's living on the, at least the seabed over there.
0: The question for me is, you know, did they, do they have enough money to keep going or are they, or is this just kind of the tip of the iceberg on, on funding that they need in order to get them where they want to go? Right. Because, you know, they, they don't expect to make money until what, 2024. And that's like the, the first year that they're going to make a single dollar, and I'm looking at slide in their investor presentation where they talk about how much money they're bringing in with this fundraise. So there's a specific line item called proceeds to the metals company, and they're raising $570 million. So if we go back down to the revenue projections, so if we see that the operating costs from 2021 to 2023 totals, let's see, about $250 million. Is that right? Sixty four plus seventy five plus eighty eight, so that's two hundred and twenty seven million dollars. So it seems like they're raising twice as much as they need just to get to their first revenue year, and they're projecting that right after that they're going to have to spend two hundred and fifteen million dollars in operating costs. So or two hundred yeah two hundred fifteen million. So it seems like. The first three years is really just them prepping. So that's probably a lot of personnel costs, maybe some R&D costs, actually go out and get more samples and do all that. Um, And it's not until 2024 that they're actually spending, what, like almost three times as much to do the actual mining. So it seems like the amount that they raised, based on their projections, is enough to get them to finish out 2024. So if they need more, they might have to, within you know maybe the 2023 and 2024 period do another fundraise maybe do a, a round of secondary shares in order to actually get there and and that's assuming that if everything goes well that they'll start being uh ebitda profitable in the first year that they actually start mining which i think is maybe a risk i think it's i think it's kind of risky to be honest that they'd be able to do that so
1: no oh, no, i i definitely think it's it's risky especially cuz like yeah, I'm probably missing something big here, but if you if you know where the rocks are, like they already know where the rocks are at this point, couldn't you just go get a bunch of them and then sell them, or like sell them to a refinery or something? So yeah, I think that's kind of odd to me that there's something there's something missing as to why they haven't just done that if they already have all the rights and everything secured. Mm.
0: That's a good question. I'm I'm curious about that too. They didn't make it very clear in the deck what they're waiting for.
1: Yeah, because I mean, the beauty of this so. is how simple it is like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm sure it's uh super deep. Like I was looking on uh, Google Earth earlier, and it I mean, it's not it's not like it's a shallow part of the ocean. It looks like at least a thousand feet down. But if you have a cable with uh some buoys along to to reduce the weight on the cable, I'm sure you could just start picking up some rocks and then selling them in the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious what the uh, what the shortfall is.
0: Yeah, that that actually is a really interesting question.
1: If you're carrying a ton of this stuff. And it's only going to get you 500 bucks. And then you got to go and boat or yeah, you have to go and uh, spend like 2000 miles to get to shore and then dump this off. What is the fuel cost per ton? And then you're not refining it yourself. You're selling it to somebody else to then refine it. So uh, I'm really curious about that part. I'm wondering if they're waiting for some type of shipping technology change, like a commercially available nuclear, like boat or something? I don't know. There's something that seems to be missing. My feeling is it's probably on the fuel efficiency side, or fuel per, fuel efficiency per ton. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. There seems to be a, a gap here, or else they would just start doing it. because uh, I think mm. the beauty is that, it, in theory, it doesn't take much money. You need a boat, you need a really long rope, and you need a shovel at the end of it.
0: Uh, I think the way it works is actually they have, a, they have a hose, like a bi-directional hose, and the trawler at the bottom pumps up the nodules and all the dust and uh, dirt and stuff at the bottom of the ocean all the way up and then at some point there's some type of mechanism that sorts it out and tries to get as much nodule as possible and throw back as much dirt as possible and then there's this other hose that sends the refuse back down so maybe maybe there's some technological stuff that they have to work out the kinks for
1: depending on how large the nodules are and how much they vary in size if your hose can't mm. pick it up or if it gets stuck, cause there's like an equilibrium point where the suction is not enough, then there could be some issues there. Like how would you, yeah. you have to like know what the weight is or be able to filter out the extra heavy rocks to avoid them getting yeah. jammed.
0: Yeah. Like, like these, you know, 64, 75, $88 million. This could all go into making a better trawler, right?
1: Yeah, I could see that. Cause uh, there's gonna be so many limitations. Like if you, just have a giant shovel of rocks, it's gonna be uh you not gonna bring it up mm-hmm. and it's not gonna be very efficient, especially when you need to get so many tons.
0: But then again, if you were to talk pie in the sky idea, maybe you could build an artificial island as a refinery.
1: Yeah, actually with all the you, rep- have reasons, your... you might be able to. I just I think the looking just looking on Google Maps and how deep it is where they where they're trying to mine, mm-hmm. that's a little bit worrying to me. I think it's just they're in a really deep part of the ocean. So mm-hmm. I think if they were In a shallower part, I think it it would make a lot more sense. And they wouldn't need Mm -hmm. to necessarily have all this new technology. They could potentially use something that's a little bit more mundane. But just trying to do this with like a giant vacuum, 3,000 feet, 2,000 feet below the surface is going to be really tough.
0: Well, I mean, it does seem like they've been doing the mining. Like It's not like they haven't done any of it um, because they called out they got 82,000 kilograms, which converts to 90-ish tons. So they've got about 90 tons of sample.
1: I guess that's how they've gotten a lot of this. Uh, they have a pretty good data set on like, how much value there is per ton, mm-hmm. which is good. I wonder if they've tried to sell it at all.
0: Maybe people don't know how to hit, like refine it yet. Or not that they don't know how, but that the facilities are not meant to take in nodules of these rocks with four different metals inside. Could that be it?
1: Uh, I don't know. I feel like any mine would be able to, like any mining mining operation has to be able to do this today. Like the rocks at the bottom of the ocean aren't, that aren't any different than the rocks on land. Um, the land was well, under the ocean. Well,
0: well I, I think the difference might be that most mines, I think only mine like one element at a time, whereas these are four things combined together. So like, if, for example, you need to uh, heat up the rocks to a certain temperature to get the metal that you intend to get out, I would imagine copper versus manganese versus all these have different melting points. So, like, how to manage that, I think, might actually be complexity itself.
1: Yeah, I wonder if they are even worrying about that right now. Like, maybe they just try to extract the most value. Like, if they expect on average there to be like 13% copper or like 2% mm-hmm. copper, if that's the most valuable, they would just focus on getting that. But I think when you heat up these rocks, isn't all aren't all the metal or all the different uh, metals coming out? If you heat mm-hmm. up to the metal with the highest melting melting point, all the other metals are going to come out, and then they're all going to have different densities. So you, then you can also uh, extract them.
0: Yeah, but how do you separate them? Like, so I'm imagining like this giant vat.
1: Like, there's also like, a density, and like a lot of these will bind with other things. So, like when you're taking when mm-hmm. you're extracting gold,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think it's illegal in the, in the U.S., but some countries use mer- mercury because the mercury mm-hmm. fuses with the gold. So then you put the mercury in, fuses with the gold, and then you extract both the mercury and the gold. And then uh, you separate the mercury from the gold. So I'm sure there's like, for each of these, I'm sure there's some type of similar kind of uh, chemical binding that they can use to extract what they want. Yeah, Gold Rush. Very interesting show.
0: Oh, wow. I had no idea. Interesting, interesting. I'll check that one out. So is this a buy for you, man? Are you going to get on this?
1: I like the idea of it, but uh, if I have to go in on a moonshot, I think it's a moonshot that I think will have more upside. Uh, Because I'm just wondering, like, if they were able to do this, are they able to beat out? Like, what what is the actual cost? So not the cost per ton, but the like the, the land, like the landed cost. So like after you've gotten this rock in the middle of the ocean and you've driven all the way back to land and you've smelted this, how much more cost effective is it after all that? If they had more numbers on like, on that, I think it'd, it'd be clear. Cause I think that's a big question I have. Like, even if you're able to extract it for zero, what does the rest of your cost structure look like? And they, I don't think they know yet. So that's one kind of thing I'm curious about cause they really are in the middle of nowhere. So, if they have to go all the way to LA to deposit this, just hypothetically, how much does it cost in fuel to get there?
0: Hawaii seems pretty close. Uh, seems like the nearest. Eh, smelt some smelt some ores, man. Get a get a luau.
1: They're like they're going to be the yeah. most reticent to, to have any environmental <laughs> impact.
0: Ah, but they're nodules. They're, uh, they're nodules. They're
1: going to smelt it, and there's a lot of. Heating up stuff, so mm-hmm. I don't even know if even in LA, I, I wonder where that like closest smelting facility I mean it might even be like Central America somewhere which could make could make sense, but I think it's an uh, yeah I mean, this is kind of like the kind of thing I'm interested in. Um, I'm just curious about how much of an upside it is if it works compared mm-hmm. to traditional mining and then also like i don't I never really like looking at the research I didn't really understand why they went to this really remote area of the Pacific. Like I'm sure there's much shallower areas with similar kind of features. I mean, it seems like they got the rights and that probably makes it easier for them. But I'm curious why this relatively difficult place rather than somewhere somewhere like right off the coast of California or the Atlantic or somewhere else.
0: Yeah, it would have been very helpful to establish kind of their site selection process.
1: Because like if you're right off the like imagine if you just had like a giant hose going from like right off the coast collecting all these things. I mean, I'm sure they're not everywhere uh, and they aren't everywhere. That's why they have like the whole scanning procedure. But I mean, it seems to me that if there's such a massive area just in the Pacific that has these, there's lots of areas across the globe with this. And I'm sure that some of them are more cost-effective. Like if you just have a single hose or like maybe you have like a 14 mile hose or however long you need to go from the site all the way to shore, you could just literally be, it'd be like a money hose. <laughs> you could just be <laughs> sucking these things up and putting it right in the refinery. It'd be, it'd be an incredible business and be incredibly cost effective. Having this out in the middle of the Pacific and something that's like not that valuable per ton, uh, just makes this kind of, it doesn't make it as a cut and dry like oil, right? Hmm. Like the cost per a ton of oil is worth like thousands of dollars, tons of, tons of like, you no, know, I think, yeah, a few thousand, like thousands of dollars per ton of oil. Obviously it's not measured that way, but I think the value of oil, it makes it make sense to have this very costly operation to extract it. This thing at 500 a ton. And then also I'm sure it varies uh, across. Maybe this is just the average that they were getting. Uh, And I'm sure it's the the higher number that they could choose to put on this deck. So I think it's also, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. There's there's some gaps that the, the presentation uncovered and didn't really address. So I'd be curious uh, mm-hmm. on the costs to actually get this to shore to refine it, and how much you're actually able to make from it from a ton and out in the middle of the ocean. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know, like a lot of these uh, oil wells, they also have pipes that are going from the rig or from a central um, area all the way to shore. So they're essentially pumping this thing and going directly to shore. So they don't have. I mean, they have hundreds of miles of piping, uh, especially like in the Gulf of Mexico. To help with their distribution to essentially pump money to shore to the refineries um, and into the system so they're able hmm. to extract incredible amounts of value and it's like if it's thousands of dollars per ton and you're able to have a pipeline that goes directly from where you're getting it to the refinery i mean it's a really nice kind of optimization that wouldn't really work with rocks at least as far as our current technology can do it
0: so the ticker is soac for this company it seems like the market actually, <laughs> it's like they didn't like it, but they also didn't care too much because I think it started out way back around $10 and it only ever got up to about 12 And then after they announced, they just went down back to 10 So it's like very uh, very anticlimactic. They didn't get a pop, so it wasn't hyped up as much. I guess people are playing a wait and see game because it's not below the original NAF point like the original value of the, the spec. I guess investors either aren't really paying attention to this one because it's so weird as a play. Or maybe
1: I mean, they just... The weird things are like where, yeah. the, where the money is. So yeah, I guess, yeah. For me, like it's, I think it's, it's super interesting. And I, I'd probably, probably put a little bit here if I, if I understood some of those questions a little bit better. Like if the answer is like, we mm. don't know, it might not make any money. It's like, oh, well, I mean, that's okay. I think having some kind of direction on that would, would help me. But also, yeah, this, this, I think if another company was doing this and they were doing it really close to shore, I think it'd be almost a no brainer if they could, uh, like if you were doing this like off like the coast of India or something like that, I mean, that could be really interesting because you have the refinery right there, you have the factories right there, there could be a lot more, but like in the U S like, okay, you, you take this, what do you, do we even refine this in the U S like, are we refine it and then we ship it to China? So then, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of kind of questions I have.
0: I'm looking at this article here, it's saying that uh, this uh, this area is actually the largest known supply of battery metals. So maybe maybe that actually that seems like why they're targeting that specific area.
1: And it's it's remote enough that nothing else would make sense. Like if, I'm sure they would they would be more aware of battery metals off of like India or Africa or somewhere closer to land. So if this is what they found is the most effective, then it's out in the middle, like properly in the middle of nowhere, then this must be the only real location.
0: I think it's interesting because I like with the Mountain Pass materials company, I do definitely see the need for metals like these, uh, just because of all the battery tech that's going to be needed in the next few years. But to me, it's a little bit too uh, R&D stage, like it's a little too science projecty. So I would probably just check in, in two to three years to see where they're at, if they're on schedule or maybe ahead of schedule and uh, kind of reevaluate then.
1: I'm in the, kind of the same boat. I think it's really interesting. I think it's like one of the more interesting uh, specs we've seen. I think along with like the the Honey one, the Vector company.
0: Oh, that wasn't the spec.
1: It wasn't. Oh, it's was just a just a company.
0: That's just a cool company, man. Oh, I got in on that one. I I put in uh, about a thousand shares for a whopping thing less than three hundred dollars.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess <laughs> just for uh, context for everyone else. So there's this. Uh, we were talking about this company. I don't know a few months ago what Was it called B Vector Industries? Or something yeah, like that. and essentially what it's, yeah like what that. It, what it's doing is they're using the bee as a way to spread a uh, anti-fungus uh, virus on uh, on all these different plants. But they're using the bee, so they coat the bee in this anti-fungal spray and then send it out. And then the bee will go and try and pollinate all these plants. And while it's pollinating, it's actually leaving behind the anti. Fungicide or the fungicide? I guess fungicide. Yeah,
0: yeah. Just to be clear, the it's not like a, a, like some technician is like picking up each individual bee and like putting this coating on them. So you have a beehive with all the with all the bees inside, and then the bees themselves will just want to pollinate everything. So like there's already this. So the existing process that they're riding on is this idea that you have these beekeepers that come pollination season uh, for all the produce and fruits they will take their bees around to do all the pollination uh, with these beehives. And then the writing on top of that, they want to deliver, use the bees as a vector to deliver the fungicide, right? So it's almost like, like I saw the video of how they do it. And it's almost like right next to the beehive, there's like a, almost this, like the equivalent of a doormat for the bees that's coated in this special molecule that is the fungicide. And so when the bees go out and prep to, to fly out to, to pollinate, they get on their, I guess, their feet or their...
1: Harry jacket that they wear or have. <laughs> yes. Grow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, that thing. Uh, they get it on there. And then in the process of doing the pollination, just because of the fact that they're coming in contact with you know each of those plants, uh, they're actually delivering the fungicide while they're pollinating. So you're kind of getting a twofer in that. So yes, $28 million company, probably the smallest company I think you and I have ever really talked about, but uh, very interesting.
1: Yeah, it was like what $65 million market cap?
0: No, 28. And
1: they IPO'd?
0: Yeah. Yeah, very small. Yeah.
1: So between the the B fungicide and the uh, this metals company, I think
0: these are like the two kind of craziest
1: craziest ideas that I've seen in public markets.
0: We'll have to find some more. I think uh, well the fact that they're public uh, or at least the, the, so the ticker for the B company is a B-E-V-V-F, B-Vectoring Technologies International Incorporated. But th- that's literally a penny stock. It's, uh, it's worth 30 cents a share.
1: It's interesting. I just wonder like, what is, how much money do they actually make if it works?
0: You know, I honestly don't know what the market would be because I don't, I mean, maybe you could deliver other compounds, but then like, isn't the whole problem with like Roundup? That it's that these pesticides are killing the actual bees. So uh, I don't think that they could deliver everything, but it seems like they're delivering some things.
1: Yeah, I think uh, only the they only have the fungicide today. I'm sure they can deliver more things in the future, or they like design the bees so that they aren't affected by whatever pesticide that they're distributing.
0: This technology would be good for outdoor farming, uh, where there are pests and fungus and all that. I think if the if the app harvest model of having the greenhouses or the the aero farm vertical farms really take off, I feel like in general you would expect demand for pesticides and fungicides just to really drop off. The, I guess the market's probably big enough for for all the different farming techniques. hmm
1: I think I read a stat recently that forty-five percent of all like usable mm-hmm. land on earth is farmland. So
0: forty-five.
1: I'm gonna try to Google again and see. Okay, so Earth's surface is 29% land, 71% is habitable, 71% that's habitable, 50% is agriculture.
0: Interesting. So half of habitable land is used for agriculture?
1: And uh, oh, 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 here, this is an interesting part. So of the agricultural land, 77% is livestock, meat and dairy, 23% is crops. So I guess it's like grazing land for cattle. Yeah,
0: I guess that makes more sense.
1: Wow. I guess all of Mongolia then is, it's like livestock land. Interesting,
0: but that that almost like uh, maybe that's just for cows because it almost is in conflict with this idea that most of farming is with like factory farms where like all the animals are cramped together. Like if all that know, land is I used, for... I don't think it
1: is. I think it's that's too. That's um, not cost effective to put. Every, like in some areas, it makes sense to put everyone in a farm, mm-hmm. but I think in a lot of places it's not cost effective. So of the livestock. Mm -hmm. of the land is for plant-based food to feed the livestock. So basically the grass (laughs) that they eat. This is an interesting chart.
0: So we've got two companies, uh, MP Materials and the metal company. MP Materials is the more traditional mining company that is riding off of the demand for EV engines, like the electric engines that require uh, magnets. Their vision is to restart this mine that in its heyday was one of the, you know, top rare earth producing mines in the world, get that back up and running, integrate it into the supply chain and eventually make their own magnets. The metal company, on the other hand, is this kind of pie in the sky uh, dream of taking a boat out into the middle of the ocean, uh, dropping a trawler, connect it to a hose and just like sucking up these baseball sized rocks that contain uh, metals. Necessary for batteries, such as you know copper, nickel, and cobalt, and uh, it's not going to actually make any money until you know 2024 or 2025. So it's further out there, more of an R&D project than MP Materials, but uh, could potentially uh, yield a whole new green field of, of metals. Me personally, I am already invested in MP Materials, pretty bullish on it. Uh, because I think that this is just going to need to be a core competency that the American economy just uh, reacquires. And MP Materials seems to be the really the only company uh, interested in taking on that mantle. So you know, I think in general, it's just a uh, worthwhile company to be in. Uh, and they're already profitable if you, if you take that the most recent, uh, the quarter, the Q1 2020, and uh, want to use that as your run rate. So I'm already in that. I might add to it it was al- there was already some weakness in the SPAC market um and i think i did add some uh in in the form of warrants i guess hopefully as that bounces back um eventually i'll i'll kind of exercise those and and have some more shares on hand uh i re- that's actually fun packed the first spac i ever invested in and it's done quite well even through the spacageddon that we had recently um so I might just hold on to that. The Metals Company, like I said, is a little too far out for me. is still too much of an R and D project for me to really want to open up. But I do want to revisit them in a couple years to see, you know, how far they've how far they've come. I feel like this is maybe three years ago, in the, in like the orbital technology space, where like, you know, are we really going to turn, you know, rockets into a real business? Like we kind of are, but maybe there's only a few players. So. We'll see in three years if uh, you know how this market develops. So it's a it's a path for me right now. How about you, Alex?
1: Yeah, I think uh, MP materials doesn't really fit kind of my portfolio. It's a bit slower than I'd like. I think it. I think in the long term, I think it makes sense strategically. I think they're probably going to do decently. Just uh, it's not something I'm, I'm too familiar with, and not something that uh, has the growth pro- growth profile I'm interested in. Um, on the other side, metal company super pie in the sky. There's a few. Kind of key questions I want to get answered first, Um, like how much value are they able to actually extract? Uh, Just because something is worth five hundred dollars a ton, doesn't like what does it cost to refine it and to get the uh, get that five hundred dollars? I think that's a kind of a big open question right now for me. It is kind of the high growth potential that I like. It's just that uh, right now it seems super risky.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the interesting thing is because those mining rights are a super tangible asset for any company that actually wants to do deep sea mining. I think even if this company goes under, um, there, I think they're, they've kind of, even in the research phase proven that this is a thing that can be done. So I think somebody's going to be doing it. So definitely something worth checking in on.
1: I think they can sell those rights. Um, so they could just become mm-hmm. a license holding company and still make some money. I think it just, uh, I don't know if it's ever going to make sense. I think unless you have, I guess it would make sense if you can run the, all of these rocks to the shore to get refined for almost free. So some type of uh, energy source, that's not diesel that you're burning in order to move the rocks from out in the middle of the ocean to the shore. Like if that's free, then this makes a lot of sense. I think that's something that's really kind of blocking me right now. Um, mm-hmm. like these, yeah, this company doesn't need to figure that out. Uh, it can be some other company that does it uh, and they can just sell the rights and then become a holding company, which would, which would actually be kind of a better, like I would have more confidence in that than these kind of folks with no mining experience, kind of going out and doing this successfully.
0: All right. Well, cool. shall we sign off?
1: Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for this. We need to have a good one.
0: We need a catchphrase.
1: Teams back is blasting off the Island. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get
0: back to you. Thanks for listening. Uh, guys. <laughs>
1: Thanks so much for listening. Follow us at SPAC on Twitter for updates, to give us feedback on the show, and to tell us which SPACs to review next. Note, the opinions expressed are solely those of the hosts, and not of any entities that they may be associated with. As always, this is not
0: financial advice. Remember to do your own research.